Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons and to the Hunterian Museum by proxy. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome such a select audience here this evening for tonight's uh, final lecture in our series, The Lens of Life. Um, again, we're very grateful to the Royal Society for the uh, support that they've given us for this uh, event and for uh, a host of other activities that have been taking place over the last few months. The very final one is going to be tomorrow, um, which is looking at the work of Alexander Fleming. So if you haven't booked your tickets for that, I'm afraid it is already full. Um, but just to tease you with it, um, we might have it again. It's been very popular. Um, it's my personal pleasure to welcome Sir Peter to speak this evening. Um, Sir Peter is a, a fellow of the Royal Society and is one of the few surgeons that has received this award. Um, it's an honour that he shares with our founder, John Hunter, so we're in prestigious company, I believe. Um, it will become clear during the course of this lecture the breadth of Sir Peter's career, um, but I should just mention sort of some of his current activities. Um, he's here as director of the Centre for Evidence and Transplantation, which is um, an, an organisation that has um, its offices here at the Royal College of Surgeons. Um, he's Emeritus Professor of Surgery at the University of Oxford and also a past president of the Royal College of Surgeons. So you've probably seen his portrait on the stairs up to the museum. Um, he was a brilliant advocate for us when we refurbished the Hunterian Museum. Um, so I'm very grateful for him speaking this evening. So I'd like to pass over to Sir Peter, who's going to speak on the microscope and transplantation. Thank you, Jane. Um, well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the freezing College of Surgeons, uh, at least a little bit warmer here than it is outside uh, in the hallway. Uh, in fact, I'm staying here the night, and uh, my office was so cold that I thought I'd go down to the bedroom where it'll be a bit warmer, and it's even colder, so <laughs> I may have to go to sleep in my overcoat. Anyway, I was asked by Jane some time ago whether I'd speak in this series, and as it's involving the Royal Microscopical Society as well as the Royal Society, uh, on the microscope and did it have any role in transplantation. Now, I don't pretend to be a microscopist or a pathologist, but of course you uh, uh, get brought up in the laboratory using a microscope, and I'm fairly familiar at looking at lots of in the early days, we used to do it all ourselves. Um, so before I start and get onto the microscope in particular, I'll just give you a very brief um, overview of uh, a little bit of the history of transplantation, uh, which goes back uh, to this legend uh, when Cosmos and Damien in the third century, who were the patron saints of surgeons, physicians, and numerous other bodies, uh, transplanted the leg of an Ethiopian uh, slave, I assume, onto the leg of a Roman citizen who had a tumorous growth of the knee, so the legend goes. Uh, it's interesting that this legend, there are nearly 30 to 50 paintings of this particular legend in different museums around the world, and I can't quite remember where this one, I think this one is in Venice, but uh, I can't remember for certain. Now, there are so many of them. Um, 
they certainly had good uh, public relation officers because there's no uh, discussion about failure, there was no evidence of rejection, and uh, allegedly the Roman citizen walked away with his black leg, uh, well, uh, and happy. Well, not much else happened in transplantation after that legend, but it's worth mentioning that John Hunter, the father of surgical science, was really uh, interested in so many things, but also transplantation. <coughs> now, he was transplanting uh, um, hormonal organs such as ovaries, testes, etc., to see if you could transfer the characteristics of a female into a male, or transferring, for example, the um, um, claw of a cock into a hen to see whether they develop more masculine type of uh, attitudes. But he also carried out the first uh, successful transplant, which was a xenotransplant, which means when you transplant tissues from one species to another, so this is the transplant of a uh, human tooth, uh, shown here, uh, into the comb of a cock. And this is in the Hunterian Museum. You may have perhaps noticed it if you were looking around. Uh, and it's a well-vascularized human tooth, and it is a successful transplant. What's not commonly known is that Hunter tried to reproduce this 200 times without success. Um, but that's not usually mentioned. Uh, anyway, let's skip way past this to the beginning of the 20th century, because the modern history of transplantation really begins uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And I'm not going to go through the various early bits of the history, but just pick out one or two uh, items of interest. And this person, I think, is particularly interesting. This is Alexis Carell, who was a member of the surgical team of Mathieu Jabelet, at the University de Lyon. And um, he was given a research task by his professor to work out a way of joining vessels together uh, so that they would stay patent. There were very crude methods of joining vessels together, which inevitably resulted in clotting <laughs> of the vessels, which we call thrombosis, and uh, uh, failure. And he in 1902 published this seminal article describing a technique for joining two uh, ends of an artery together using a three-point continuous anastomosis in between. Now, it's interesting that a few years later he moved to the University of Chicago and then to the Rockefeller Institute where he carried out lots of experimental transplants in animals uh, and he also described the end to side anastomosis where a vessel was joined end to side as the description implies. And here over a hundred years later, the same techniques exactly, except with more modern suture materials, are used to join vessels together by arterial surgeons and of course in transplantation. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in the early part of the century because of this work in particular. Well, transplantation, there were attempts after the war to develop um, cadaver transplantation with no immunosuppression, both in Paris and in Boston. And 
no successes, there was no immune suppression, and uh, all the kidneys, this was transplantation of kidneys, rejected usually in a few days if they worked at all. Although one patient, David Humes in Boston, who received a cadaver kidney, did uh, have function for uh, nearly five months. Well, then in Paris in 1952, the first living-related transplant was carried out when uh, Madame Renard gave a kidney to her son, Marius, and this shows the technique used, developed by the French surgeon, pioneer transplant surgeon, Cous. Uh, and this shows an enterocide, anastomosis uh, of the uh, artery and also of the vein in this particular instance. The kidney functioned immediately and uh, the uh, young Marius uh, recovered and was quite well for a couple of weeks and then started to undergo rejection and the kidney failed. And that was the story with no immunosuppressive drugs. And Coos, in fact, was so depressed by his whole experience in transplantation, he gave it up and went back uh, to urology uh, until... The next event occurred, which was the first successful transplant carried out in Boston a couple of years later, just before Christmas, um, where two, uh, a pair of identical twins were transplanted, one obviously being the donor and one the recipient. And this was a unique event. Uh, these are the twins that were transplanted, the Herrick twins, donor, recipient, um, this is Joe Murray, the surgeon who implanted the donated kidney, who later was awarded the Nobel Prize as well. John Merrill, very famous nephrologist who organized the whole event. And Hartwell Harrison, the urologist who removed the kidney from the donor twin. Now, you might say what was unique about it. Well, at the time, uh, of course, we didn't know, uh, and I was only a medical student at the time, but we didn't know whether uh, a kidney, a transplanted organ, could function normally in a normal physiological manner, uh, even though, of course, there was no damage due to rejection. And this proved very much so that it could. And so this stimulated transplantation all over the world, the fact that if there was no rejection reaction no attempt by the host body to uh, uh, destroy the transplanted organ, then a transplanted organ, in this case a kidney, uh, could um, function extremely well. So all the efforts over the coming years were directed at immunosuppression. Over the next 10 years, it was really looking at irradiation, irradiating the whole body, which certainly suppressed the immune response to a foreign organ, but also uh, generally led to aplasia of, or destruction of the bone marrow of the recipient and death from overwhelming infection, with one or two medium-term exceptions. And then the uh, anti-cancer agent, 6 mercaptopurine, developed by Elion and Hitchings at uh, Burroughs Wellcome, uh, was discovered and... Uh, was developed as an anti-cancer agent, but two clinical uh, hematologists, uh, Damaschek and Swartz in Boston, showed that it was immunosuppressive. And then 
David Hume and his group in uh, Richmond, Virginia, and Roy Kahn, the young registrar, showed that it could suppress or delay the rejection of kidneys in dogs. And very quickly, sigma-captopurine entered the clinical arena in renal transplantation, and this was then succeeded by azathioprine, or imuran, which was a parent compound of um, sigma-captopurine uh, and perhaps less, less toxic, although that was not, never firmly established. And so azathioprine, uh, or imuran, became a standard drug therapy to which were added steroids. And so the modern era of transplantation had really got off the ground. Just to show you briefly how far we've come, this is a log plot looking at years after transplant and percentage graph survival uh, in cohorts starting from 1982 going up to the current era, if you like, of the early part of this century. And you can see that <coughs> the 10-year estimated graph survival has gone from 32% back in 1982 to 68% uh, in recent times. Or if you want to look at half-life, that is the uh, number of patients that uh, will survive, or the number of years that 50% of the patients will survive with the same functioning graph, it's gone from eight years up to nearly 22 years. So that's been an amazing improvement. And I'm using the kidney through most of this talk uh, to illustrate the points I'm making because virtually everything in transplantation has been discovered or developed in kidney transplantation, then moves to liver, heart, etc. Um, it's interesting to note, and I'll just point this out, that there's been very little improvement over the last 10 to 15 years. All this improvement is at this stage, and I may have time to mention some of the reasons for that a little later. Well, now, this is supposed to be about the microscope and transplantation. So let me pick out some areas where I think the microscope has played a key role. And the first one is the microscopic examination of a transplanted organ, in particular in the early days, to uh, make a diagnosis of acute rejection. Acute rejection is the description we use for the response, the immune response to the transplanted organ, which can cause a greater or lesser degree of damage and, in the early days, result in failure of the graft, destruction of the graft completely, uh, in something like a third of patients in the early days of imurant and steroids. Just to tell you what a normal kidney looks like, this is a <coughs> kidney, uh, just the anastomoses of the artery and vein have been completed, but the clamps haven't been removed, so that's why it's pale. And then the clamps are removed, and within 30 seconds the kidney becomes pink, perfuses, and within a minute or two later, one will start, if it's a good living donor kidney, will start to secrete urine. Cadaver kidneys may or may not, sometimes they take days or occasionally weeks to um, start to function, depending on how much damage uh, they've uh, uh, incurred during the death process. Uh, and this is still, even to the end of my uh, clinical professional career, something that I felt uh, 
remained enormously exciting, even after 40 years in the business, when you took the clamps off and you saw this white kidney uh, suddenly become pink and swollen and then start to put out urine. It was something I'd never tired of. It was quite an exciting moment, uh, even by the time I was 67 when I put the knife down. Well, coming back to rejection, um, the, uh, as I mentioned, in the early days, we did a lot of our own histology. And this is an early picture in the 60s, late 60s, uh, with the microscope, which is really the topic of the talk, of course, um, and histology being examined. And this is what, if you'd taken a biopsy from that kidney, uh, which we do now as a routine, but the kidney that I just showed you a few slides ago, before it was perfused, uh, it would look like this. This is essentially a normal kidney, and these are the tubules that collect the urine after it's filtered uh, through the glomerulus, um, and there's a bit of a cellular infiltrate here which uh, is not doing any damage and is probably insignificant and may be related to uh, some of the ischemic damage, possibly. But that is essentially a normal kidney. Now, rejection occurs about uh, 10 to 14, 21 days after the organ is transplanted, in general. And there are two types of rejection. One is called cellular rejection, which is the common one, and the second one is mediated by antibodies, which is less common but much more difficult to deal with. Now, this is an acute cellular rejection at a lower power, and you can see this massive infiltration of white cells, uh, most of these are lymphocytes, uh, some will be macrophages, um, and if you look at a higher power, if you just remember that normal kidney I showed you before, this is what's called tubulite. A lot of these lymphocytes are invading the tubules, and that's known as tubulitis, and it's a hallmark of an acute cellular rejection. The other type of rejection is mediated by antibodies, and um, this, again, doesn't look uh, on a straight uh, H&E stain like the other slides have shown you that obvious because the cellular infiltrate is minimal to modest uh, and there may be vessel changes in severe antibody-mediated damage, but today we can, on a biopsy of the kidney, uh, stain it for a complement component said, see, known as C4D. And this is such an example with acute antibody-mediated rejection stained for C4D, seeing a heavy deposition in the kidney, uh, again confirming that this is essentially an antibody-mediated type of rejection. So that's all a bit technical, but it's just to give you an idea <coughs> of how biopsies are used um, to diagnose rejection. And, of course, it's much simpler now. When I started, one had to give the patient a general anaesthetic, reopen the incision, and take a wedge out of the transplanted kidney, and it was the same with the liver uh, when that uh, liver transplant started. But then needle biopsy uh, was developed, and so this can be done percutaneously uh, with just a bit of local anaesthetic to take biopsies of the kidney and or the liver. And so um, these are done really 
where there's any suspicion of rejection or other types of organ dysfunction. Now I mentioned that we haven't improved much in terms of long-term graft survival. We prevent acute rejection in the vast majority of patients or we can treat it successfully. But <coughs> one has um, a number of patients who gradually lose their renal function and in the case of the kidney, if you biopsy them, what you'll see is shown here. This is known as chronic allograft rejection, and this is a medium-sized artery, which you can see is virtually occluded. And all this is a gradual, uh, progressive injury due to the immunological reaction against the graft. And this we can't treat. Uh, we prevent it by giving better matched kidneys, we can prevent it by trying to perhaps prevent the incidence of acute rejection. But this is one of the major problems of uh, kidney transplantation, heart transplantation, and to a lesser extent liver transplantation, so this chronic allograft rejection. And to some extent that's why the medium and longer term results in organ transplantation have not improved in the last 10 years. Well now, the microscope can also be used today in examining the urine. Now the urine, of course, for a kidney transplant, of course, uh, would seem an obvious area to look for evidence, diagnostic evidence of rejection. It's never proved to be particularly useful, uh, although providing some information in the early days, but never as satisfactory as a biopsy information. But with the more potent immunosuppression that we have uh, now, there is a latent virus known as a polyomavirus, known as BK virus, uh, which uh, is latent in the uh, epithelium of the kidney, the urinary tract, and when a patient is immunosuppressed, this can flare up and cause destruction of the transplanted kidney. And this is known as BK nephropathy. And, uh, well, something's gone amiss here. Let me just go back. Well, never mind. Uh, <laughs> let's see if it's not down here. Yeah, here we go. Um, so this is urine uh, stained with a Papanicolaus smear to show uh, these large, are known as decoy cells, but these are large tubular cells that are sloughed off from the transplanted kidney uh, and included in the nucleus is the polyomavirus. And so now most units are monitoring patients regularly for the urine, looking for these decoy cells. If they appear, then they can do a uh, polymerase chain reaction for BKV virus in the serum, and if that's positive, um, they may skip that and go straight to a biopsy of the kidney, and then what you see is with immunoperoxidase staining, these the polyomavirus inclusion bodies within the kidney itself. And it's very important to detect this because there's no active treatment. The only treatment is to reduce the level of immunosuppression. And that's very successful. The vast majority uh, will regress with reduction of immunosuppression. 
that of course has other risks of perhaps causing rejection by reducing immunosuppression, but probably they're over-immunosuppressed and that's why this latent virus has reappeared. But it can lead to the complete loss of a kidney transplant. And it occurs in about anywhere from 10 to 20% of kidney transplant patients, this BK nephropathy. Well, let me go back a touch to tissue typing and the microsotic uh, cytotoxicity assay. Tissue typing really is the sort of lay term for describing uh, the typing of an individual for their transplantation antigens known as HLA antigens. Every one of those has a unique pattern of transplantation antigens. Uh, and it would be highly unlikely, in fact probable, that not a single pair of you in this audience uh, would be even close to being identical for HLA antigens. It's the most polymorphic genetic system uh, defined in man, genetic system, and of course the reasons of this are not to frustrate transplant surgeons, but it's a very important defence mechanism against infection, and it has evolved of such over thousands, perhaps even longer of years in man uh, as a prevention against infections, particularly viral infections. Um, and that's why in areas such as the Highlands of New Guinea, who have a very, if you like, primitive HLA uh, genetic system, when uh, measles was introduced uh, by uh, white people coming to the Highlands, you know, thousands would die because their HLA system had, had not evolved to the level of complexity seen in the uh, more polymorphic uh, white populations of the world. Well, back in the uh, 60s, uh, all tissue typing had to be done by agglutination techniques, just as we do for red blood cells, uh, blood cell typing. Uh, or by cytotoxicity using very crude test tubes. You know, you do things test tube, you then take it out, look at it under a microscope. And a huge breakthrough in this area was the development by Paul Terasaki from UCLA of a microcytotoxic technique uh, where he developed firstly a little tray, a micro tray with 60 wells in it, and um, in each well were sera that detected different sera that detected different transplantation antigens or HLA antigens, and then all this was looked at under the microscope. And technicians eventually became incredibly skilled at doing this very quickly. It was a fast technique, so that it was applicable to transplant to uh, donors and recipients before they were transplanted, because it only took three hours contrast to the previous techniques which took half a day. And uh, I won't go into the details but just, just as an example of uh, what you might see under the microscope, uh, you've got in the bottom of each little micro well uh, uh, a, a tiny bit of anti-serum, a specific anti-serum detecting a particular HLA antigen. You've got rabbit complement and then you've got lymphocytes from the person you're typing. <coughs> you add the and dye at the end of the reaction, which is an hour and a half, and if the antibody is detecting 
an antigen on the cells that you're typing, then uh, the cells are killed and the eosin dye goes into the cells and appears and all the cells become black. If the antibody's not detecting an antigen on the lymphocytes that you're typing, then no dye is taken up and the cells look uh, white and uh, viable. So that became very rapidly over the next five years from 1967. That picture was taken in 67 when uh, Paul and I were at a workshop in Torino where we first introduced this technique, or rather Paul first introduced this technique. And I was able to use this also to demonstrate for the first time that in man, cytotoxic antibodies developed after a transplant. And indeed, if these antibodies detected antigens in the donor, then the outcome was hyperacute rejection. And this is one of the first cases described by several of us in the 60s from the New England Journal of Medicine. And again, just remember what the kidney looked like that I showed you before. This is a kidney two hours after transplantation, and you can see it looks pretty sick. It's uh, uh, in its death throes. And histologically, um, again, uh, this is hard to say, but this is a high power of a kidney. This is a glomerulus. But the whole kidney is invaded by polymorphonuclear leukocytes. And this picture is typical of an acute immune reaction or sometimes known as an Arthur's response uh, in a kidney transplant. So very quickly, um, the cross-match, as it's called, uh, between a donor, potential donor recipient became an imperative part of all tissue typing techniques of donors and recipients. So not only were you trying to get a well-matched kidney, but particularly you were avoiding a positive cross-match where the recipient, potential recipient, was sensitised against the donor. Now, we went through that. Now, let me... I, nextly, I just want to discuss the final application of the microscope of transplantation. I've only selected some examples to give you a flavour for it, but one is the development <coughs> and the use of the operating microscope. And the operating microscope has been used in experimental transplantation uh, since the late 60s and in clinical transplantation more recently than that. And I just want to make the point that the whole of microsurgery uh, in clinical practice developed from the early experimental use of microsurgery in transplantation. Now, to give you the background, because I think it's fair to say that most experimental transplantation, at least in the small animal, the rodent, the mouse or the rat, has been directed at trying to understand tolerance. And I'll come back to what tolerance is in a moment. And again, I wouldn't like to give away the impression that all the problems of transplantation are solved, because that is not so. We certainly <coughs> don't often lose organs from acute irreversible rejection now. We do lose them from chronic rejection. But also, there are lots of complications uh, arising from the immunosuppressive drugs that we use, uh, the side effects of the drugs, no free lunches in transplantation, uh, or from the general 
immunosuppression uh, of the recipient because these drugs suppress not only the immune response to the grafted organ, <coughs> but also uh, to um, uh, everything else that might be invasive, such as bacteria, viruses, uh, and tumor antigens. So patients are more likely to develop cancer, they're more likely to develop infections, often quite exotic infections, and then all these here are side effects of the drugs that we use today to prevent rejection. So this is why in the uh, research world, people in transplantation biology have spent and are spending an enormous amount of effort in trying to understand how one can produce tolerance to an allograft. And tolerance is a term that really means that you would have a graft that would survive with no immunosuppressive drugs or very minimal immunosuppressive drugs. And without question, this is the holy gram of transplantation. There are spontaneous examples of tolerance in clinical practice. Uh, for example, this young boy at the age of 15, he had a liver transplant uh, when he was two to three months old and was on immunosuppressive drugs. He was a patient of Tom Stasel's at the University of Pittsburgh. When he was about 12, I discovered that he had taken no drugs for at least two to three years. His parents didn't know. His doctors didn't know. And in fact, he'd been quite shrewd. He used to put his pills, all his immunosuppressive pills, in his neighbor's dustbin. Uh, so these parents wouldn't know, and of course his neighbours probably never looked in a dustbin anyway for <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, so when he was discovered he'd been off drugs uh, for at least two years and probably longer, uh, Stasel decided to leave him off drugs, and this is a picture several years later, uh, and he's still, uh, Tom tells me, ten years later, alive and well and on no immunosuppressive drug therapy. So that kid man now is tolerant <coughs> to his foreign liver transplant. Um, there are probably several hundred instances of patients with liver transplants who are off him, have stopped their immunosuppressive drugs and have not rejected the liver. In the case of the kidney, there are only probably in the whole world uh, at the most 50 to 60 patients who have stopped their drugs and have not rejected the kidney. So the kidney is a much more difficult organ than the liver. We don't know why, but that's the way it is. And of course, these 50 patients have been studied in Europe and USA intensely uh, at the current time, trying to find markers that would indicate why they were tolerant to their organ in the absence of any drugs. This is another example which uh, I think is also quite extraordinary. This little boy at the back here, he is blood group O. And he received at the age of two weeks a heart transplant from a blood group A. Normally if you put an A kidney into an O recipient or an A heart into an O recipient, they will reject it immediately. It will be a hyperacute rejection just as I showed you where it was due to antibodies against uh, HLA antigens. 
And uh, Laurie West, who uh, was director of the Pediatric Cardiac Transplant Program uh, at Sick, uh, uh, Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, uh, was responsible for this. But it wasn't done without any uh, forethought because she had done a PhD in my department where she'd spent nearly four years studying tolerance in the neonatal mouse uh, with a heart graft with the aim that could this be applicable clinically because a mouse when it's born actually is immunologically immature for several weeks. The evidence all suggests that in man a newborn baby is not immunologically deficient to any obvious extent but of course the evidence was not very solid one way or another. When a child or a baby, newborn baby, is dying of heart failure, uh, and it's usually a left ventricular hypoplasia, there is no treatment. They die. The only possibility is a heart transplant. And of course, to wait till you are fortunate enough to find another baby dying uh, from some other, some other reason who was the right blood group uh, would reduce the odds, and so she felt that it would be worth trying uh, incompatible blood group transplants if an appropriate donor came along. And so this little boy was the first one done, and this is eight years later. She demonstrated beautifully that the little boy is tolerant to the blood group A antigen. And the series now is something like 25 incompatible successful ABO transplants in newborn infants with a heart transplant. So that is a very solid, another solid example of tolerance, not to histocompatibility antigens, but to blood group A antigens, or blood group anti incompatible blood group antigens. Now there's also been an interesting uh, study in Boston at the Massachusetts General Hospital where <coughs> uh, five patients, uh, and for very selected reasons who were receiving a living related kidney, were treated in a way to produce tolerance based on a lot of experimental work. One patient rejected the kidney from an acute antibody-mediated rejection uh, quite quickly within a few weeks, but the other four recipients have now been off immunosuppressive therapy for now nearly two years uh, and have not shown any deterioration of renal function. Now, I say these were highly selected patients, and there isn't time to go in for the reasons that this was done in these particular patients. Mm -hmm. But you can see, those who know anything about uh, medical therapy, this is the conditioning regimen. And this is not something you'd give to each of you unless there was a desperate need, and there was in these patients. And I say that, or each had different reasons, but uh, good reasons. So. Although these patients are at least tolerant in the medium term to their transplanted kidney, the conditioning regimen is not generally applicable to organ transplantation. But nevertheless, it's encouraging. And these are biopsies taken <coughs> anywhere from two to three, uh, three years after transplantation in the four patients who did not, as I mentioned, one patient rejected the kidney. And these are essentially normal biopsies. So that again is quite an exciting event, 
but the protocol is not generally applicable to organ transplantation. So now that brings me on to microscope and experimental transplantation. And the model that's been used initially back in the late 60s, developed in Melbourne, in fact, uh, uh, in my laboratories there was renal transplant in a rat that was transplanted to Oxford when I moved to Oxford some years later and then we shifted to the mouse and the reason for using the mouse rather than the rat is the genetic understanding of the transplantation antigen system is far far ahead of that in the rat so one could uh, use models that would answer very specific questions, and I'll show you just one example in a moment. So you could not transplant a heart in a mouse or a kidney in a mouse without magnification. And the operating microscope has been an enormous uh, advance in this area. This is uh, a transplanted heart in a mouse. Um, supposed to start beating, it won't. <laughs> there it goes. Um, which is quite extraordinary when you think uh, that uh, the vessels that are being anastomosed are 0.1 to 0.2 millimetres in size. And if we look at, uh, you'll see this better when it beats here, <laughs> is the anastomosis being done. The vessels being anastomosed there, as I say, are 0.1 to 0.2 of a millimetre in diameter. And it is an amazing thing that the good Lord gave us, if we can see, our hands can control even the fine movements needed to do this. Because it is, I find that quite extraordinary, that if you can see what you're doing, the nervous control of your fine movements is so precise that you can anastomose things like this. It's uh, always been an amazement phenomenon to me. Of course, as we get older, we lose our sight, our hearing, and everything, but there's no question that probably I could still do that as long as I could see. So, again, this has been a contribution of the operating microscope. Now, leaving that aside, uh, what uh, how has it helped us? Now, don't worry about the details here. I just want to use this. This was a model we developed back in the 90s in Oxford in Catherine Wood's laboratory. And basically, this is a mouse heart transplant between two quite disparate strains of mice. So very incompatible for their histocompatibility antigens. <coughs> Using a particular form of preparation, this is using an antibody against T lymphocytes, a particular type of T lymphocytes, combined with a donor-specific transfusion, you produce tolerance. All these animals are surviving with a beating heart, no rejection, uh, no treatment, they reject in 10 days. Uh, with one or other treatment, you get some surviving with the uh, antibody alone, but the combination produces tolerance. And these animals will also accept a skin graft from the same donor strain. So that's the model. These are tolerant animals. Now, more recently, in the uh, early part of this century, uh, Catherine Wood's laboratory showed that, of course, it was, well, how do these animals stay tolerant? 
example, they do have to have the heart still present. But also, they were able to show that you could withdraw a certain type of lymphocytes from these animals that are tolerant, uh, and these are then defined, they're called, used to in my day, they were called suppressor cells, they're now called T-regulatory cells, T-reg cells, and they have a particular type of phenotype that you could pick them out and grow them in culture, and you can actually transfer suppression by transferring these T-reg cells into another animal untreated and produce survival or failure of a heart transplant to inject. Now this has important clinical implications and the only reason I want to show you this because there is now another model that microsurgery and the microscope make possible because you can't translate what's happening in a mouse straight into man. So this model developed again in Catherine Wood's laboratory, uh, I think is quite intriguing. When you have a coronary artery bypass graft, uh, usually a saphenous vein from the leg is used to put the new grafts in. But <coughs> if it's possible, nowadays cardiac surgeons prefer to use the internal mammary artery because it's more long-lasting a coronary artery bypass than a saphenous vein. So when they prepare this, of course, there are lots of little side branches that uh, are clipped off, and David Taggart, the <coughs> cardiac surgeon who collaborates with us in Oxford, uh, is able to remove little bits of that and send them up to the laboratory. Now, so there you have a bit of human artery. Now, what are we going to do with it? Or what the Gatron Wood and the group and Bushel, etc., have done is they then use a particular type of mouse that is immunodeficient, has no immune responses at all. It's been genetically bred so it will not produce T lymphocytes, B lymphocytes, NK cells, which are key players in the rejection reaction. And so that bit of artery then is uh, inserted into aorta, you cut a bit of the mouse aorta out, and this is human graft, human aorta in an immunodeficient mouse that cannot reject that particular um, graft. And this is just the um, preparation of that little bit of human artery from the internal mammary artery. Again, all done under the microscope. And here is this human bit of artery in the mouse aorta, that's the anastomosis, beating away the blood passing through it quite happily. Now, if you um, leave that, no treatment, then the artery does not reject, and this is a couple of months later, pretty much normal bit of human, a human artery, no evidence of rejection two months later. If you then put into this immunodeficient mouse human white cells, which can then reject perhaps, and they do, you see the same artery, this is only three weeks later, is almost occluded from this rejection reaction produced by the human white cells put into this immunodeficient mouse. 
because it has no immune response of its own. Any immune response is due to the human white cells that have been put into it. Now, I mentioned the T-regulatory cells because now it is possible to identify various markers, <coughs> T-regulatory cells in the human, grow them in culture, can they prevent this rejection reaction? So you're taking your immunodeficient mouse that has no immune response, it's got a human arterial graft in it which will not uh, reject, but if you put human monocytes in, lymphocytes, it will reject, but if you combine that with um, so-called T-regulatory cells at the same time, then rejection is completely prevented. So this is an ingenious model in the so-called skid mouse that now enabling plans for <coughs> big multicenter trials of treating patients with T-regulatory cells. And this has all arisen from this type of experimental work which the microscope makes possible because the model is only possible with an operating microscope. Now finally, the operating microscope has been used in clinical transplantation uh, in a number of areas. It's used quite often if you sometimes have to anastomose quite small branches of the renal artery <coughs> kidney transplantation for which you need magnification. Laparoscopic donor nephrectomy uh, is often done with the use of an operating microscope as well as the <coughs> laparoscopic magnification, uh, although I think that's a bit of an overkill. Uh, but of course it is used uh, in more recent times for hand or forearm transplants uh, where all, you can imagine, this is uh, the transplanted hand see the scar there. This is six months after surgery. But of course all the vessels of the arm uh, or the hand and the nerves have to be anastomosed, joined up together in the right way uh, and that of course couldn't be done without an operating microscope. Um, and this patient uh, again is shown 27 months after the transplant and he's got quite reasonable movement of the hand. So it's a functional hand, not perfectly functional by any means. He has full sensation in the hand. And so there, you know, what the place of this will be, ultimately one doesn't know. But if one could produce tolerance in the human patient, then these so-called composite graphs, hands, faces, etc., would become much more realistic. Uh, this is a picture of uh, Maria Simono at the Cleveland Clinic doing the first U.S. face transplant or partial face transplant about 15 months ago, um, which was successful. And she had spent uh, probably the last 10 years of her career on experimental work, <coughs> working out all the pros and cons of facial transplantation experimentally and the techniques required before doing one, which is the sort of preparation you need, in my opinion. Um, but the one you're more familiar one with, I'm sure, is the French uh, case, where this young lady, she was the first patient to receive a face transplant of any sort back in June of 2005. And she had been savaged by a dog uh, while asleep, 
and that was the injury, which uh, at the time was felt conventional plastic surgery was not going to be terribly beneficial. So she had a partial face transplant, and this is what she looked like four months after surgery, uh, with some degree of return of sensation, some movement, uh, complete movement on one side of her face now, but still partial on the other side. She has had a lot of problems from the immunosuppressive drugs that she has required to prevent rejection. She's had one or two quite severe rejection episodes. But so far, uh, she's managing pretty well, but I said there are some side effects from the drugs, which is one of the downside of this type of procedure that is not life-saving. Although she, of course, would say, from her point of view, uh, it is life-saving. And again, without the microscope, this couldn't be done. All the anastomoses of the veins, arteries, the nerves, muscles, etc., all done with the aid of an operating microscope. And finally, in paediatric transplantation, of course, uh, many babies uh, need a transplant for a condition called bilirratresia, where the bile doesn't drain from the liver. And this child at 18 months has already had two palliative operations to try and keep it alive for a bit longer, and then has a liver transplant, again the operating microscope being quite an important feature of doing this transplant, and then it's the same child going off to school five, six years later. So in conclusion, what can we say about the microscope? Well, I think it has had a major role in the development of organ transplantation. I've talked mainly about the kidney, but it has a role in uh, the development of all the tra transplants of all the organs. Its primary use has been in the diagnosis of rejection and other causes of organ dysfunction. Um, however, in more recent years, in the last 20 years, it's had an increasing role in experimental models of transplantation, particularly to understanding this phenomenon of tolerance, which we're hoping will become clinically applicable before too long. And of course, it is the father of microsurgery. Microsurgery was developed uh, from experimental transplantation and of course now is commonly used by plastic surgeons in a variety of areas apart from its continuing use in experimental models of transplantation. So I think that organ transplantation is one of the medical miracles of the 20th century without question, and the microscope has been a key player in very many aspects of this miracle. Thank you. Yeah, sure. The electron microscope has been very useful in understanding some of the pathology of rejection uh, at a more refined level. 
but hasn't got a role in current diagnostic practice. It has been a research tool at various stages in understanding the pathology projections, had a much greater role, <coughs> for example, in understanding the cause of different types of renal disease, particularly different types of nephritis. But in transplantation, it's had a pretty minimal role. The scanning uh, electron microscope is also being used experimentally, but has no clinical role at this point. Yes. Um, when was the operating microscope first used um, in surgery? Uh, well, it was first used by a uh, young Japanese surgeon in 1966 uh, in San Diego, who was the first person to describe a renal transplant in a rat. Uh, it was then used by Bernie O'Brien in Melbourne to develop microsurgical techniques at the same time as we were developing renal transplant in the rat too. And um, so it goes back to the late 60s. And, and I remember uh, you know, Bernie O'Brien, uh, who I knew very well, and <laughs> when I went back I was wanting from the USA to set up microsurgery for, as an experimental model to try and develop a... Because all, all of experimental transplantation was done with skin grafts. Uh, and skin grafts, of course, a uh, very difficult model to work with. They reject no matter what you do, pretty much. Uh, and so to understand organ transplantation, well, I felt we needed to have a model of renal transplantation or now heart transplant, liver transplants also we in a rat, because it does enable you to answer questions much more quickly. But I remember I decided we needed another technician, and um, I rang Bernie and said, we're advertising, and we've had a lot of advertisements, responses to the advertisement um, for a technician to work in uh, microsurgery. And um, so I said, could I send someone over you for a couple of weeks? And he said, yes, where was he trained? I said, well, he's not a doctor. Not a doctor. I said, no, he's not a surgeon, he's not a doctor. Uh, and he was stunned. He said, well, that's no good. There's no way that person will be of any value. And I said, well, we think he's pretty good. He was uh, actually a Chinese lad from uh, Malaysia, uh, who I think was in uh, Melbourne to try and avoid doing national service. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, leave me that as it may. Uh, I sent him over to Bernie O'Brien. Only, he only took him because he was a friend of mine. And uh, two weeks later, he rang up and he said, "Tell me how you got this guy." He said, "He's a natural. He's brilliant." <laughs> and he was, and he worked with us for a couple of years. And then he developed a, a slimming agent uh, known as Slimex. And he asked Professor Ewing, my boss, and myself, and Bernard Marshall whether we would be. Uh, non-executive directors of a company he was going to set up. So we said, well, no, you know, we can't do that as university employees. And uh, you know, five years later, I last saw him, he was driving around in a Rolls-Royce painted gold <laughs> with YL on the door, Yolden Lim. So it was a great shame. Who knows, we might have been millionaires, <laughs> which he obviously was at that point in time. 
So, sorry, that was a long answer to your question of when did microsurgery start. At <laughs> late 60s. Jeff. Do you think there's any future in uh, stem cell transplantation? Yes. Um, stem cells are being used. Strangely enough, stem cells have some peculiar capacity to induce tolerance. Nobody's quite sure why, particularly mesenchymal stem cells, and there are a couple of trials going on at the moment that look quite encouraging. Uh, in terms of stem cells... Uh, to replace tissues or organs. I think replacing organs, that's, you know, cloud cuckoo land. It could be possible in the future, wouldn't you never say nothing would happen. But its role might be just replacing tissues uh, or, say, in diabetes, providing stem cells to grow up into pancreatic islets that produce insulin. So they will be, it will be tissue transplants rather than organ transplants that stem cells will have a role and I think we'll see that over the neck. Parkinson's disease, for example, new, new stem cells develop into neuronal cells that produce uh, dopamine. Uh, that's already been attempted, not particularly successfully, but these are the roles that I can see stem cells having in the not very distant future. But I think in terms of will you be able to grow organs from stem cells, you know, that is Buck Rogers stuff. Yes. Sorry, just a small question. When the aorta was transported into the um, mouse, could that then be retransplanted into a human being? Uh, well, in theory, it could. Yes. Yeah. But uh, I mean, what you've done in that particular model—it's a rather complicated model because you've what you've done—you've produced what's called a humanized mouse. So it's a mouse that has no immune response cells of any sort, uh, and then you can put human immune response cells, lymphocytes, whatever, monocytes, macrophages, into that. So it will; these cells will then react against other foreign human tissues. So it's a very... That's why it's called the humanised mouse, because it can't mount a response against the human graft, and then you can use human cells from a different individual to mount a response against that and then try and prevent it. So it's a particularly useful model. And in terms of these T regularly cells, it's allowed people to plan trials with some degree of confidence that this might work. I mean, it's very difficult doing these sort of clinical trials uh, with T reg cells or anything else because you can't <coughs> not give a patient conventional immunosuppression. You know, ethically, you can't do that. So it's not like your mouse where you're not giving them any immunosuppression, you're producing tolerance. So, And the problem is that some of these immunosuppressive drugs will also prevent the development of tolerance. So it's quite a tricky business planning these trials, and you know, the majority of them are going to fail, I have no doubt. But as long as they're done carefully and ethically, you know, there'll be a breakthrough at some time. The T regularly cells you might be able to use in the presence of conventional immunosuppression uh, because we now know that certain types of our drugs, such as serolimus, do not appear to affect um, T regularly cells, whereas drugs like cyclosporin do. So, you know, we're understanding this, and of course, that so called humanized mouse allows those questions to be answered too, at least in part. 
No, it's a congenital abnormality, but it's not hereditary. It's where the bile ducts that drain the bile out of the liver are absent. Uh, and it's just a congenital abnormality. And then up until liver transplantation, there were various palliative operations where you tried to bring a bit of gut up on and anastomose it under the liver, etc. Uh, and they were the only techniques available. Now, when a child has that, you would try and find a suitable liver within the first two years. You might do a palliative operation early on to keep the child alive, uh, and then, because you, know, you, you prefer to do the liver transplant the older they are, so uh, you try and keep them going for a year to two years. Does this happen very often? Yeah, it's a very common condition, yeah. Mm. That'd probably be, uh, well, in this country, I suppose, uh, 20 or 30 liver transplants a year for biliary trees, yeah, that, that, that sort of number. Mm. So it's, it's not a, it's fairly, relatively common in the paediatric uh, population. Sorry, it's more. In the humanised mice, um, why do the introduced lymphocytes start attacking the mouse cells? Good question. <laughs> Uh, well, probably if you waited long enough, they would. I mean, that is a very good question. Why don't they attack the uh, the mouse itself? And it could be that uh, some of the response uh, to the uh, in the transplanted human artery that's prevented may be due to the cells also attacking the mouse. Now you will, but it is surprising even at I think it's eight weeks, you do not see much evidence of a graft versus host reaction. That's where, in this case, the graft is human lymphocytes. Why aren't they attacking? This is, of course, a big problem in bone marrow transplant, is that if you're not HLA identical, uh, then you get the transplanted marrow or the white cells in the transplanted marrow attacking the recipient. That's called a graft versus host reaction. And why this doesn't happen in the uh, skid mouse, I don't know. And it probably would if you waited long enough. So are you saying that the lymphocytes are, while well, you're, you're focusing on the human artery within the mouse, the, the, the lymphocytes actually busy elsewhere in the mouse? <laughs> They've got better things to do. They're, they're not attacking the artery, but they may be busy elsewhere attacking the mouse. Uh, well, no, well, I think if you don't put the T reg cells in, then they do attack the artery. They may be attacking the mouse too, I'm not designed for that. Uh, because all this work's done by Catherine Wood's group since I left, so I, that's why I'm not quite clear about how much evidence of graft versus host disease is. I'd be surprised if there wasn't some, but it's not obvious. Sorry, they tell me. Well, that's what you would like one day to think, but certainly not. The first trials that have been planned, there's a big multi-centre trial uh, under planning due to start in October in Europe, <coughs> and these Treg cells will be produced in a variety of ways. You can produce them in the human, they'll be growing up in cultures, 
and then they will be in the first instance administered to patients who have had a transplant uh, and are on conventional immunosuppression and then you'll see if it's possible to reduce the level of immunosuppression. That will be the first start. Then if that looks encouraging, then you may give them at the time of transplant to see if you can get away with less immunosuppression than usually is needed. So it's a very slow, iterative procedure to get to an answer because you mustn't do anything that could harm the patient's outcome. And that's one of the problems of doing trials of this sort of thing uh, in a human. I mean, we, that trial of, uh, that uh, experiment model of an anti-CD4, anti-T-cell antibody and uh, blood transfusion, we actually did a pilot trial in Oxford back in the early 90s and, uh, but of course we had to keep giving immunosuppression and there was a suggestion that uh, patients who received the antibody and transfusion had much better renal function at one year than those who received conventional immunosuppression uh, but the numbers were not convincing enough and then the uh, antibody was withdrawn by the company and so a more larger trial was never carried out but probably rightly so anyway. The results were encouraging but no more. But it is one of the problems that trials of protocols that might produce tolerance in clinical practice that you have to keep giving what is considered conventional immunosuppression. Mm. Sorry, this is probably a really stupid question. Um, I know no questions are stupid. They're trying to do that to you then still. Um, do they take, is the plan that they'll take the patient's own T-Rex and do whatever they do in culture and then put their own cells back into the patient? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, the, the plan is to take a patient's own cells. Yeah, I didn't make it. It wasn't somebody else's <laughs> cells you were going to put in. These were cells taken from the patient who's going to have a transplant or has had a transplant. And then they're grown up in the presence of antigen, IL-2, etc., to produce uh, a whole lot of growth factors that can produce quite rapid expansion of these t regnery cells. So it'll be the patient's own cells that have been expanded into a big t regular population will go back into the same patient. Yeah. That's a good question. Just coming back to what you were saying about you can see things, you can do more with the microscope. How long did it take you to learn to operate under a microscope compared to your previous operating um, Probably about three months. Yeah. But I think it'd be quicker now. When the kids, you learn much quicker now. But we were, yeah, the first time. I remember we kept transplanting kidneys in these rats, and they were all dying. And then I was home with low bone pneumonia, and one of my research fellows came roaring out to see me one day, and yeah, said that <laughs> this was after three months that one of the animals that survived and was well. And then thereafter, our failure rate was about 2 or 3%. I don't know what we did different, nothing probably. Uh, so the techniques are much more refined now. So I think a new research, you do need you know, some, obviously, hand-eye coordination, but assuming you have that, which most people do have, actually. You know, there's about 10% of people who don't have good hand-eye 
train somebody in one to two months. And it's helpful, strangely enough, if they're not a surgeon, because they have, if they're a surgical trainee, they have so many preconceived ideas about how you should do things that they take longer than a technician who knows nothing about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much cool. for, for your talk. Um, I'm going to show our appreciation one more time. Thank you. Um, I just have a few announcements um, at the end of the, the uh, talk. Um, we always ask you to fill out one of our evaluation forms. I always say this we do read them. We do type them up, and if we can make the changes that you suggest, we do try to do so. So we do appreciate your feedback. Um, other things that are coming up shortly, we have a very different evening on Friday. If anyone's interested in stitching, weaving, knitting, or they might fancy trying their hand-to-eye coordination and learn some basic surgical skills, the museum will be open late on Friday evening as part of the Museums at Night um, celebration that's going on all over the weekend. So come along, have a glass of wine, that might impair your judgment, I don't know, um, and do uh, have a, a try out at, at some things. No need to book, just turn up and it's free for everybody. Um, and also, um, a mention from the Royal Society, do um, take one of our Capital Science leaflets um, with events that are continuing on through this 350th anniversary year. Um, but also, for a slight change, as it's a big party, the Royal Society is moving its excellent uh, summer exhibition from their headquarters over the river to the South Bank Centre um, from the 26th of June until the 4th of July. There'll be all things scientific going on over there. So do watch out on their website, uh, perhaps sign up for their newsletters um, and head over Waterloo Bridge and uh, join in the activities. I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Follow the big purple cow, I think, is the um, thing to look for over there. Um, and that's it from me. Thank you very much. And we hope to see you over the summer, or if not, for the next round of evening talks in the autumn, where we'll be focusing again on more surgery. So this is the place to come for surgery. Thank you.